You may be seated. As you do take a seat, I would invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 being often a pretty familiar passage to us as we think about the Ten Commandments today. And as we are turning there, I uh, did make a joke on Facebook that somebody asked me about this morning, actually, saying, are you really going to preach an extra hour? Uh, Which many preachers across America make that joke, I will not preach an extra hour today, Lord willing. Not planning to. I pray that the Lord will come upon my preaching and that it will be succinct and tight for His glory and for the praise of His name. So to that end, I hope you are now there. We are going to read all of Exodus 20. Um, I will be preaching on the first uh, 11 verses functionally, but I think it's important for us to read it in its entirety. This is the word of our God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, and your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up this, up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This concludes the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Let's pray. 
Father, as we come to this familiar passage, but a passage that has immense weight, pray that you would shepherd your people, that you would comfort us, and that from this word you would feed us today. I pray that the meditations and thoughts of my heart would be pleasing in your eyes, my rock and my redeemer. Would you, O Lord, feed us this day? It is in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So as you can see, we are dropping in a little bit of a parachute in onto Exodus 20, which I actually think is a really good spot for us as God's people, having been in Genesis for so long, to continue on just a little bit longer and that which we often think of of the Ten Commandments, or commonly actually originally called, if we look in the Hebrew, that of ten words. These ten words that God gave to Israel here in Exodus 20 have weight and power for them as God's people, and they have weight for you as God's people today. Now to that end, I think if we look at this, many people will focus on this and say, yeah, did God really mean this for all people? Is this really true in 2023 in the same way that it was pre-Christ for the people of Israel? There's a lot about this that, however, functionally we know is true within our own hearts and within our own lived experiences we struggle with, we doubt, or we change, perhaps, to make a little bit more palatable for us. As we come into this passage, we find ourselves in, in really a linear progression that we have walked through, that of our patriarchs of Genesis. We're skipping over that of Joseph, and we are now popping in on the people of God as the book of Exodus supplies, uh, supplies for us and, and implies for us that they are coming out of exile. They're coming out of Exodus. That common story of the people of God being in Egypt... And as God's people, here they are now at Mount Sinai that they are receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So we skip over some of that, but we need to remember the grand sweep of this story and it's how we walk into this. Some would argue that this is actually one of the first set of laws that are given, but we as good good Christians would know and see and believe that functionally actually what this is doing is it's a further uh, further functioning and, and, and amplification of what we see of what Adam and Eve were called to keep, that they kept so miserably that they could not keep this covenant of works. They were unable to do this, that in the law that there were these struggles and things that were true in that moment and continue to be true today. We struggle with what it is that God tells us is important. We can sometimes look at the various things that are going on in this world and say, oh, this is not really what's going on. I actually appreciated uh, probably a decade ago. Actually, it was definitely a decade ago when I heard this, that there was a sermon that I heard on, on the Ten Commandments at one point in my life, uh, as many as you have, have heard sermons as well, where they talked about, I think this was 2013 or 14, that they were talking about this social moment that we were in, that atheists had actually gone out and rewritten and created a new Ten Commandments. Then we say this is more a socially acceptable and permissible and and normal experience of what the world looked like here in the last 10 years or so, of what we see. Now, what's really interesting for it is it actually starts with an understanding of this, and it basically starts with this. It says, to strive to understand what is most likely to be true and be open-minded to change. However, what's interesting about these 10 commandments that we see from the culture around us 
We can almost laugh at this already, but we see just a couple other commandments later that there are things that they say we need to use the scientific method. We must believe about reproductive health. So you see that there's something that's saying you must be open-minded, but you must be closed-minded. There's a contradiction. Our cultural moment that we're in provides this reality that we've always seen of the human experience. That we strive and try to do things in accordance with what we want, what we desire. That we try to form things in such a way that we are open-minded to change and what is most likely to be true. I put before you today the reality of of a passage that is, again, a bit heavy and it is a bit hard. But my hope is that in this passage that you will see not the heaviness or the weight of the law, but that today the Lord will meet you and that you will delight in fulfilling the standards that God sets for us. Again, that's the reality of what we're seeing here in this passage. If we we go into it a little bit further, before we get into our passage, there's three components of the law that I think are really helpful for us to walk through. Because what we're seeing is law. We're seeing a component of law here. So, if we walk through the types of law that we have, the law is simply in, in, in to be used for civil use. In other words, what we think of traditionally of the law, that is it restraining and giving reasons and guidance for society. There's civil use. That we as a society of people have things that are going to be helpful. The law also has a second component that is that of teaching or the pedagogical use of the law using a bit bigger word, that is for instructing and teaching us what God's character is like. How it is that we are in need of a Savior and all of this story points to this. All of this truth points to this. So that it doesn't only just inform our conscience of what is right with the civil law, but it tells us what it is that we are to believe about God and how it is that we might rightly approach Him. Now, the third use of the law, that which John Calvin called the principal use of the law, is how it is that we should normally relate to God. I I think John Piper succinctly, although we disagree with much of his theology, he put it rightly and helps to show us this. The principal use of the law is how we are to live for God's glory. How it is that we are to honor Him. That is my further hope and purpose here, that we are couched within that, that it is about God's glory today that I want you to be concerned, that I want you to see these these verses of this passage before us today. That each of us truly would delight and see and fulfill the standards that he set, because his standards don't change. And then, in turn, you would delight from that place, that you would find joy in that place, that you would find rest in that place. So to that end, please turn in your Bibles, and we're going to actually start in these first couple of verses, because when you start with the Ten Commandments, you need to start with the preface of what's there. These first verses say this, God spoke all these words, verse 1. So as we begin our time together, I want you to see this, that the Lord is fully in charge. Why? Because one, God spoke these words. Actually, if we go just a little bit further up and just to the the verse before, many would argue that Moses spoke these words because verse 25 of chapter 19 says that he went down and said these words to the people. Others would say that God was directly saying these. He is saying through Moses these words, I am God speaking. There's power 
and what is going to be said. How often, though, when we look to a passage like this and see that the power rests in God, do we challenge that authority? Do we see that authority as maybe not carrying the authority that we want? I often think actually a little bit about my son, who, as many of you know, his favorite word is no, 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 no. Especially, it seems like in the back of church when he's being told he can't do something, he can't run up front with that, no, no, no. Our hearts are like that. Our hearts are like little children that struggle with this reality of saying when God speaks, it has authority. Does it really have authority? It absolutely does. For actually, that's the first thing that we need to see. We need to see that He is truly the one in charge, that He is the one who is setting the standards, that He is the one that He is speaking to Israel here and saying, I know that you're going to challenge my authority. He's giving this exposition. He's giving this commentary before He gets into the Ten Commandments because He knows that that Israel needs to hear that He is speaking. These are His words. This is God's word for His people. Second, He does something actually really powerful as well, that if we look at this, we see in the second that He says, I am the Lord your God, in verse 2. So He spoke these words, but He's giving the terms of the relationship. I am your God. Actually, what's really powerful, if we get into the Hebrew of this, which we won't go too far into this, In the first verse, he talked about being Elohim, about being God. In the second verse, he is using the name of the Israelite people, Yahweh. I am who I am. My name is sufficient. But I am the Lord, your God. And actually, if we look at this as as ties that goes into the New Testament, that goes to that of Christ, of that of Christ being our Lord, we cannot miss this. We cannot see that I am who I am is speaking I am who I am is saying, I am your God. And there's a third thing that he's doing as well. He's reminding the people of God of what it is that he has done, that he has graciously provided a way of escape. This falls at the end of Israel having been again in Egypt, that they are now in this point of saying, God, I know that you have done these things. I know that you have rescued me. I've seen that you've rescued me. We've crossed the Red Sea. We've done these things. And God is reminding His people in this threefold way that He's saying, I'm speaking, I am your Lord, and I am your Redeemer. That I am doing these things in such a way that I provided a gracious way of escape for you here at the beginning. We cannot miss this because this, this reality, if we walk, walk through this, of seeing that He is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... It gets to a a nature of of provision for them. As we're seeing these ten words, which they're culturally normal in some ways for us to see, that we'd say some of these we would look at and go, eh, we don't rebuff against, and Israel might not. But these first couple would be incredibly hard for anyone to keep because there's a nature of exclusivity, that God is speaking, that God is their Redeemer, that God is the one who sets the term as their Lord. As we come to these, though, it should not be that we then move to these next couple of verses and see, oh, well, now there's a weight. Now I need to do these out of an obligation. Far from it. Actually, the Ten Commandments are actually to to be put here in such a way so that when we feel that weight and that curse of sin, when we walk through these ten words, that we do feel that weight. But we see that there's freedom and joy and help that comes from our God forever that it is Him who is setting the terms of the table and how it is that we come. And actually, there is pure joy, that there is pure delight in these verses that are to come. 
They're not out of obligation or frustration that we undertake these things, but they're beneficial for our relationship to and with God. That is actually going to bring me to the second main point of our passage that you have. And you go, oh, there's only two points. Well, that is true. There are only two points today, but there are four sub-points as we walk through our second. And what do you know? There are four commandments as well. So if we look at this and we think about this for just a moment, I think it's important for us to see here in our second of our <clears throat> points this morning that God is telling us how it is that we should approach. He set the terms of saying that He truly is God. I'm fully in charge. I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. Now listen up, because I am going to be the one who sets the terms of this relationship. I am going to be the one that provides the laws for you that are going to be helpful as my people. As we get into this, though, I think that it's important for us as we step into it to walk into that first commandment and see what does it say. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, we might look back and say, well, of course Israel had no other gods before them. That, that should be a common thing for them. Well, all we have to do is look back to where we were in Genesis and know that that was never the case. That even as they were fleeing God's people, they took idols with them. Why? Because they were mixing the religions of others that were around at that time, and they were saying the other gods, the other peoples, the other places of, of what is going on, we want their gods as well. Our heart is drawn towards those other things that we see the provision that appears, that earthly provision, that is going on for others in this place. Now, I think what's actually really important for us is that there is definitely idol worship, which is why I think we'll get into that here in just a second. But the 12 tribes of Israel struggled so much with what is natural and core to us as humans. Now, I'm, I'm going to bring a quote to you that is a bit of a long quote from David Foster Wallace, who uh, is certainly not a Christian, but I think he's a very important social critic uh, from the last 15 or 20 years. I'm showing that I'm approaching 40 uh, with me quoting David Foster Wallace, but I believe his commentary provides much about the hopelessness and the reality of what it is that we walk through in our moment. Here's what he says. Again, a non-Christian social critic. He's an atheist. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and most important thing in existence I know. Now, we rarely talk about this sort of natural self-centeredness. Why? Because it's socially repulsive. But pretty much we're all the same deep down. It is our default setting that we are hardwired into at birth. Think about it. There is no experience that you've had that you are not the absolute center of. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Because if we stop there, it's a long quote, as I already said. What he's saying is that your lens, your eyes, that you are looking through the most real thing that you're experiencing. What you're looking out and seeing in this world is what it is that you think is true, what it is that you think is helpful. You're prone to worship what is directly in front of your eyes. We're forgetting the very language of what Romans 1 actually reminds us and says that yes, the world screams that there is a God. We're not to worship the creation. We're not to worship in these places. That we are to remember that behind these things is the living God. That living God who I think Harold Best, the former president of Wheaton College, says, one day worship will be totally purified. 
Together we will generate an endless song of worship which no one presently can give a full account. I love to think and reflect on that just for a moment, that idea, this endless song of worship that when we start looking at what's in front of our eyes, we're forgetting the realities of eternity because our eyes are temporary. I can't see as well as I could 15 years ago. Our eyes get old. Our eyes get dim. They do not focus on the things that are eternal. It's not naturally what we're drawn towards. We forget about God's unchanging nature, His holiness, the command to worship and put no other gods before Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us in chapter 1 that religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any creature, creature since the fall. They are not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Again, another commentator actually points out, though, here in this passage, and I think it's important for us not to think about this as just Israel or just one person or just these people there. I missed this in Exodus 23 when I read through it. And it reminded me back to when I was taking Greek and I had a man who had a draw about like this, and he talked about all y'all. And if you know what all y'all is, it's absolutely everybody. And here in Exodus 20, verse 3, is this language of all y'all. It's a plural you. It's not a singular you. This is not about just Israel there. It's about all y'all. It's about the people of God for all time. This is a true truth for you as God's people today. Many years later, it's this collective way of speaking that the people of Israel, as well as for us, we are not to have any other gods before us. That in our worship of God, that when we come before Him, it must be on His terms because He's the one speaking. He knows what is good. He alone is holy. Now I'm going to move here in just a second into our second component. And before we go a bit deeper, I think there are many things that I could bring out. And to tackle this passage in two weeks is a strong task that is before us. There's much more that we could go into, and there's technical nuances, and there's things and cross-references I would love to bring out for you. And I would encourage all of you to go and study those to see that Christ is here all over this, to see that this points back to creation, that this points forward to the Christ, that there is a reminder here in all of God's people to keep these commands. New Testament Psalms, otherwise, there are so many cross-references all over this. But I think it's important for us to continue moving because we need to see how it is that we are to approach worship with that reality of God being fully in charge and of Him telling us how it is that we should approach. There's a second thing. He says don't have any idols. You should have no other idols before me. He does go into a little bit more uh, uh, provision here as we walk through this and as we see, probably because this is the nature of one of the things that the people were struggling with mightily. There's a call within this for them to remember that functionally, independently, each and every day, they are drawn towards the things of this earth and the creation rather than the Creator. And as we go through this passage on idols, I think it's important for us to think about the fact that here in our pulpit and in our sanctuary, we do not have a crucifix with Christ on it. We are not to lift up graven images. That we as Presbyterians, and we as I would say the historic church, does not put graven images before you 
Because functionally, what we're doing when we do something like that is we're bringing a symbol or an item into a place that points us towards created things more so than the Creator. For you see, actually, I think it's really important if we think about these things, the, 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 uh, the children's catechism, which we use at our house with teaching Windling, and I would encourage all of you, it's a wonderful little short catechism. It reminds us this, that God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So if we think about that, God is a spirit, does not have a body like men. Why should we deify and put together images or things that are resembling or reflecting God. Actually, that's a violation of this commandment here. It's a violation of what it is that he has said in his word that we should not do. The Westminster Confession goes a little bit further and stronger in saying that the idea of drawings and representations of God entirely steer our minds and eyes towards the representative things of earth instead of God. It draws us towards the creator rather than... We should be drawn towards the creator rather than the creation this confessional directive, this biblical directive, the plainness of historic biblical uh, Christianity takes us and drives us to the reality of a worship of God that does not have idols in our sanctuary, that does not put before you the idols and things of your hands that are also really busy as well. And I, I realize I'm going into a bit choppier waters, and I realize that there's much here that we sometimes think about and say, well, there are idols that sometimes we value more than God, that there are things in our lives that are functionally playing the place of God. That we must be careful and tread gently in those places and see any time or place that our heart, as Calvin likes to say, our, our, our idol factories are making these places of heart worship, they should be torn down. They should be taken to our God. That we must remember that in this here is a very important picture that stands for all of God's people. To that end, we actually see functionally this reality that, that even in this, as we've seen this reality of, of Yahweh coming in here, I am who I am, is pointing them towards these things. He's saying these things. The functional reality is in, here stated in such a way that is reminiscent of other uh, typology and other places that we see of Christ in Scriptures that we must consider that we must understand that it's applicable for the New Testament church, the Old Testament church, and all of God's people. We now will move quickly forward into our third command here. And we think about this for a second, because this is one that I tread lightly. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here in the Ten Commandments is a very explicit command in place for us not to forget who God is, not for us to forget about His character, His goodness, His holiness. I am saves. It's quite literally what it is when we get into Matthew and other places throughout the Gospels. Throwing back the places like this of that of Yahweh saving, that we're remembering and seeing that of the God of the Old Testament as the same God of the New Testament and it is an issue that we are not to look at God's name and revere it in such a way that we use it flippantly in day-to-day -day speak. Why? Because he values his own name. Because he values his own name from the outset and says, basically, you should value my name because I am the God who is speaking. I am the one who is commanding you to do these things. Don't flippantly throw my name around. 
So as we know, our world and culture today does flippantly throw around the name of God. And perhaps some of us may have flippantly thrown around God's name as well. I would encourage you to not do that, to not participate in such things. And when you hear those things, am I encouraging you towards legalism and to maybe rebuking people and to stopping them? Well, actually, I would encourage you not towards legalism. I'd encourage you to look towards your Savior. I would encourage you in those places that when, you're, when you hear those words, when you see those things, what if we as a church, in those moments or in those places, took a moment and in the back of our minds prayed for them? What if we prayed that the Lord would be exalted? What if we prayed for His name to be lifted up? What if we prayed in such a way that we said, here in this moment, when Your name is taken vainly, God, would these people no longer be sinful, self-absorbed, self-righteous, and looking towards a vain petition? God, would You save their soul? What if every time we heard the Lord's name in vain, that we as His people in the midst of that, took our petitions before the very One who loves and values His own name, who sets the terms of the relationship, the value that He has given, that those who are made in His image yet are living in sin, frequent lawbreakers, just like us, but they are outside of the family of God, so pray that He would draw them into the family of God. Think about these moments, these places, Now, I think there's an invitation and encouragement that if we are people who maybe find ourselves violating this, if we find ourselves being people who take the Lord's name in vain, whether that be flippantly in our language or whether that be in our thoughts or whether it be other places, that you do for just a moment feel a touch of the weight of the law. For you cannot perfectly keep this. But even in that place of feeling the weightiness of the law, I would encourage and beg you to remember that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. That I would encourage you to value His name, to stop using those words, to turn and repent of your sins, to walk free and run and find joy and delight in His name. Today. Repent and confess, but then turn and begin to not use those words. And in turn, when you start to think about those things, pray instead, God, would you hallow your name in my speech? Just like I hear that from those around me in the secular world who does not love you, for those who are not of your kingdom. I believe that here in places like this, that there's an invitation for you to truly see that he died for the places that feel like you cannot conform, that you are unable to conform to the obedience of the law. There's an invitation, yes, to walk and to become more like Christ. But in and as you find yourself not being the Christ, remember that the Christ has come for you. That He has made you right. We continue on with this and we see as well our fourth commandment and our fourth aspect that I think is important for how it is that we should approach God in our worship. Because what does it say actually here? Pretty powerful in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There's a lot of discussion as to what this means and how it is that we should break this up and how it is that we should interpret these things. But frankly, I need to look at this in such a way that is, that is tied within God's Word. We need to look in such a way that we see all of what is being said here is actually quite powerful because He gives directives that is not just like some of the other directives of the Ten Commandments. There's further explanation that He gives. It's for you, 
for your sons, your daughters, your livestock, the sojourners, in other words, the outsiders that are coming in as well. That we say that there's an imperative actually mandate here that we're to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy in such a way that it is one day in seven that God has set apart as holy that we are to honor Him and to do no works of creation, to do none of the works of our hands of the other days He has given us to do. Not because we are to just stop and to just have a, a physical rest only of stopping our work, but we are to turn our affections and delight in those moments again to consider and see the living God, to see what it is that He calls us to do on the Sabbath. Now you might even be sitting here and saying, that's very costly. That means that some component of my work needs to change. I will confess that at times in my life I have been guilty of checking emails on Sunday evenings or things of this nature that are carrying the work of the rest of the week into my Sundays. But God has called us and asked for this to be holy, to be set apart. But as we say, man, this might drive my business under. This is going to change some of the relationship with the people around me. If I were to truly honor the Sabbath as He sets apart one day in seven for complete and total rest and exalting of His name... I want you to think about your heart. Because in those statements, if we're thinking about our needs, our wants, really, what is going on at the heart of it? I am. I'm at the heart of that worship. I'm in those places. Now, there are absolutely works of necessity, and we actually see in places like from the New Testament that Christ actually does some of those things, that the Pharisees bring about the, the legalism in a way, that they bring about some of the law and we actually see, as Jesus would say in Mark 2, that it, the Sabbath benefits a man. It is made for man. It is for the benefit of man, for their worship of God, to glorify God. It is for us to, to be helpful for us as we consider our, our, our Maker. Now we're going to go twofold with this passage here as we look at the Sabbath. Because some people go, well, I, I don't know, Pastor Billy. That, again, feels too hard. If we look at what it is that God has done here in this passage, right here in Exodus 20, what does He do? Actually, in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So God is actually doing right here in this passage, He's establishing it in the creational mandate. that He is saying in the created order of what it is that I have done in creating all things in My name for My glory, Sabbath should be observed. Sabbath should be kept. So he points back to creation, but here's the thing, as we point back to creation and we look back at what it is there in God's creation, we have to look forward as well. Because I think that we should see an imperative, uh, and I appreciate somebody this week uh, shared a video and, and it talked about the imperative of seeing, was it true at that moment? Was it true in light of Christ? Was it true in the first century church? Thus it becomes true for us today. Well, we're going to see actually this component here in the life and ministry of Christ. That of Mark 2, where we already talked about, we see that Christ observed the Sabbath, that he and those around him were Sabbath keepers. He was Jewish in his lineage and line. We also see further on in places like Acts 20 that the Apostle Paul waited until Monday to go out on a journey so that he could worship with the other believers there in Acts 20. So Christ values these things. We see it in Exodus 20, there's a value of these things because it's tied back to the creational mandate. So thus it becomes imperative and important for us as God's people to consider the importance of the Sabbath, to honor it and keep it holy. 
for us to be about His worship and resting so that we honestly fall and find ourselves falling in those places and saying, hey God, I cannot do these things. My work needs these things. But in those places, are we willing and able and, and going to God and trusting that He will meet us in those places? That He is enough? That He is sufficient? I feel that it's pretty clear here in this passage as well of the, the whole of Scripture's that He is the one who beckons us to worship on His terms. We are called to be His people in accord with His law. He is both the law giver, though, and the law keeper, and in through Christ. We could never keep it ourselves. Of course, keeping the law is costly. But not keeping it is more costly. Not keeping the law ravages our hearts and souls in such a way that we become numb to the things of God and we start valuing the very things of this world that He tells us we should not. That He sets directives here in such a way that we are orienting our lives and our daily rhythms for His glory, for His name's sake. Now, I'm aware that I've barely scratched the surface on all four of these commandments, but I think there's something really powerful and important in all of them. I pray that as you think and consider these things, and you do think about the weightiness, that you would not again find yourself being drawn towards legalism, but you would find yourself delighting to keep them because there is a fulfillment of what God has done in creation. We see in two main ways that the Lord is fully in charge, and thus God should tell us how it is that we should approach but are we willing this week to provide and do honest examinations by way of application? Will we this week look at the places of our lives and the places that are not in accordance with His will and His way and say, Lord, I, I want to turn from those things. I need to turn from those things. I repent of the places that I need to look more like You. But also find that even in and when we're trying to keep these commandments, perfectly, we can't. That as we can't keep these, we need to remember that there is one who has kept them perfectly. That the Christ has come. That He felt the weight of the curse of sin and the law and kept it. He kept the law. Knowing that we wouldn't. Knowing that we couldn't. And then being killed by the very people that He came to save and then imputing and giving His righteousness to them through the work of Calvary and the cross so that we might eternally dwell with Him. Find yourself resting in that place. Find yourself resting in the reality of that eternal home that has been purchased for you by the One who has kept the law. For the One who is perfect in every way that you are not. So yes, begin to walk in obedience and begin to walk in the ways of God this, this day in ways that perhaps you are not. This morning when we walked in. Or yesterday. But rejoice in the Lamb who is slain for your sins. So whether you're struggling with Sabbath or idols or taking His name in vain or some other thing entirely, pride, self-righteousness, run to your Savior. I close with the second half of an incredibly popular C.S. Lewis quote about making mud pies in a slum. Because we all, not all, but many of us have heard about the first half of that quote. It's a great quote. But I actually think the second half of it is that much more shocking and kind of powerful in a ways. For what he does is he talks about the Sabbath. 
for we think that God is limiting our pleasure and our joy because we'll have to give something up to keep it well. When, in fact, it is designed to bring us deeper joy than any earthly pleasure affords. So in some, quoting Lewis, His commandments help us to know our God more, to delight in His truth, and to see Him as more glorious than all the things of this earth that our heart craves and desires. Run to your Savior. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank You that You have met us here in this place this morning. We ask that the truth of Your Word would soak to deep places in our lives that we would become more and more like you in all the places that we need, (laughs) not just the places that we want. So, Father, I pray for this church. I thank you for your work, Christ, and how you have applied it to those who are saved by faith. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.